Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's a privilege to be here. I appreciate you, you guys all praying for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually pray again. Just the more prayer, the better. So, um, dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, we acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from above. So we ask that each of us here, you'd give a good gift. Um, we ask that you would use me and you would work in the hearts of everyone who, who hears. We ask ultimately that your name would be glorified. Uh, we ask that your church would be built up and the lost to be reached. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Jesus. Amen. All right. So um, over the last month or so, we've been going through some of the uh, major prophets. Um, and as we've been going through, we've, we've been encountering different themes about God. One being, if you read the major prophets, you'll notice a lot about God's judgment or God's sovereignty. And so before we begin the study on the minor prophets, we want to take time as a church to look at God's sovereignty, to look at God's judgment and see what our reaction is to it. We see God deciding the fates of entire nations, judging them based on his ways, guaranteeing punishment or reward. And I just want to give a, a couple uh, definitions. When we, I'm talking about God's justice, I'm meaning that God gives to each one according to what they deserve, and he decides for every person what they deserve. And I'm talking about God's sovereignty. I think a very helpful verse is Romans 11:33 through 36, which reads, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I think understanding what we mean by God's sovereignty, I want to emphasize that verse 36 again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so we encounter these themes in the prophets. These are not themes that, that, are, that the world likes. Our flesh and the world rebel against the idea that God rules everything or that God judges sin. And so that's one of the reasons why we want to take time to look at our reaction to it as the church. When we see in Scripture, even faithful believers of God um, do not have the proper reaction to these attributes of God. I remember I traveled with a campus preacher for three months when I graduated high school, and I talked to college students about um, the Bible, and often they'd bring up stories like the flood, or bring up the idea that say, well, your God sends people to hell, so he can't be real, and they would think they had won the argument just by bringing up the fact that God is just. This is a, these are not attributes that the world likes or our flesh likes. So today, specifically, um, we're going to be looking at what we can learn about a proper reaction 
to God and his sovereignty through his relationship with Israel. We'll be going through some core ideas and then looking at some examples of different people in the Old Testament who have encountered God. So the first idea is often we might, people might accuse God in the Old Testament of being cruel or unpredictable or just punishing people randomly. But in fact, it's a very simple idea. When God punishes people in the Old Testament, he does so because of sin. Um, Genesis 18, 20 through 21. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. In the story where God is judging Sodom and Gomorrah, he does not do so because he wakes up one day feeling angry. He does not do so because he's bored. He does so because he believes that they deserve it. He does so because they've sinned. Often people, uh, the next core idea we'll look at is God's penalty for sin is death. People might say, okay, well maybe God is not acting unpredictably, but, but he's too harsh. He is too harsh in his punishments. Well, God has warned from the very beginning that the punishment for sin is death. In Genesis 2, 17, it says, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. From the very beginning, God warns that the punishment for sin is death. It's not something he just pulls out of his hat one day because he's feeling a certain way. He believes it is the just punishment, and it is. In Ezekiel 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. And so people might say, okay, so God punishes sin with death. So God, God is too harsh. God just likes hurting people. God just likes messing around, you know, how is this God loving well, I'd like to look at another core idea in the Old Testament. And one of the key lessons we can learn from God's interactions with Israel is that when God punishes Israel, he does not just do so to get back at them, but he does it to bring them to repentance. I'm going to open up to Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I say, thus says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And so, again, to answer the accusation, well, God just likes hurting people. God is violent. No, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God punishes people because he is just, not because he wants to hurt people. He doesn't desire, he doesn't, takes no pleasure in the wicked's death, but he desires that they would repent. In Leviticus 26, God is explaining to Israel the blessings and the, the blessings that come with obedience and the punishments that come with disobedience. Again and again, um, 
God says, if you disobey, then I'll do this. He'll say a punishment. And then he says in verse 18, and if you still disobey, I'll do this. In verse 21, and if you still don't turn back to me, then I'll do this. You see, God uses punishment to turn Israel back to himself. If God just wanted to hurt people or, or anything like that, he would have started on punishment level 100 right away. But the fact is that God is using judgment to turn the people back to himself. Jeremiah 29, 11. This is spoken to a people living in exile who have experienced the judgment of God. And his message to these exiles is not, I've come to finish you off because I never really liked you. His message is, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And there God is telling the people who have lived through the judgment of God that he does not want to destroy them, but he wants them to have a future and a hope. And what does he immediately mention? Them turning back to him. Them being gathered back to Israel and restored. You see, God uses his judgment. And I think one of the major lessons we can learn from the Old Testament, God uses his judgment, one, to accomplish justice. That there is that truth, the soul that sins shall die. It's what we deserve when God punishes us. Two, God uses judgment to bring Israel to repentance. Why does God bring Israel to repentance? Well, one, he loves Israel and he's faithful to Israel. Two, he has a greater purpose for Israel than to live the sinful lives that they've chosen. You see, in Genesis 12, verse 3, God said that through Abraham's descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so Israel, and that would ultimately be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. But Israel does have this special calling to be a light to the nations. And so God is bringing Israel back to himself, one, out of his faithful love for them, and two, there's a greater purpose. Now that we've gone through some of these core ideas, I'd like to go through some examples of people who have encountered God's holiness and the different responses they have and what we can learn from that. The first will be the ministry of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is speaking to a people who are living in rebellion against God. He is warning them of the coming judgment. Jeremiah 23, 16 through 20 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. So there's a group of, of false prophets leading people astray. What are they saying? They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said to me, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. You see, there's a group of prophets in Jerusalem claiming to speak for the one true God, telling people, you don't need to repent. 
You don't need to worry about your future. Everything's going to be fine. You're just fine. You're fine just the way you are. Jeremiah is trying to warn them of the coming judgment. You see, the false prophets are telling a people who will be judged in the lifetime of their generation, oh, you're fine. What is Jeremiah saying? I I think Jeremiah is warning them of repentance. Jeremiah 18, 5 through 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent according to the calamity I plan to bring on it. And so Jeremiah is warning the people of the coming judgment. And God, and that verse is saying that God, if they repent, he will deliver them. And so Jeremiah's message might not sound very fun or pleasant or nice that they need to repent, but it's what they need to hear. It's what will ultimately deliver them. The false prophets are telling them exactly what people want to hear. You don't need to repent. You're just fine. Your future is going to be great. But that will ultimately condemn them. I think the lesson we can learn about their reaction to God's sovereignty. One, we have Jeremiah submitting to the idea of God's holiness and God's judgment and warning others, telling others to repent. And we have the false prophets totally rejecting it and leading others astray. You see... Our reaction to God's sovereignty does not just affect us, it affects others around us. This series we're doing is not just a series about our own hearts before the Lord, though that is important, but this affects others around us. The next I would like to look at um, are examples of people, faithful followers of God, struggling with the idea of God's judgment and holiness. The first is... uh, Abraham pleading for Sodom in Genesis 18, 22 through 26. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous of the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sake. So God reveals to Abraham that he's going to judge Sodom. Abraham is shocked, and he asks God for mercy on behalf of the city. And he asks several times. He starts at 50 people, asks mercy if there are 50 people. By the end, he's asking, will you spare the city if there are just 10 people? And every time Abraham asks God for mercy, God grants it. Now, the passage does not tell us how this uh, interaction changed Abraham. But I think there, there are some things we can conclude we have shock at, at God's judgment to submission to God's judgment and shock to trust that God's judgment is wise. I think one of the lessons we can learn from this, it's good to pray for, the, for mercy for those who are lost, 
But we must recognize that God has the right to judge sin. And God is wise in his judgment of sin. God is not obligated to have grace. Otherwise, it would not be grace. If grace is undeserved favor, as soon as you make it obligated, is it really grace? That's something I heard from uh, a guy named R.C. Sproul. The next example is David mourning Uzzah. And David is transporting the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Um, They put it on an ox cart and they start rolling it down the road. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the Ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of God come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Adam, the Gittite. How often we have a similar reaction to King David. We see God judge someone and we're angry or we're afraid, we're frustrated. And I'd like to go over, was God overly harsh? Why did he strike this guy down? Uh, Well, he warned people in Numbers 4.15, if you touch the holy instruments, you will die. Do not touch it lest you die, is what the verse says. The ark also was not designed to be carried on an ox cart. He put handles on it so you could carry it without touching it. But anyway, it still made King David and still makes many of us angry or afraid. We think God was far too harsh. However, I'd like to look at Again, the passage doesn't say how King David's heart changed, but something changed in King David. Let's finish the passage. Thus, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Adam, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Adam and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Adam and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Adam into the city of David with gladness. So it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So that David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. There was a major change in King David. And it does not say the inner workings of David's heart. The only clues we're given is that three months pass and that David hears that God has blessed Obed-Adam's house. We see greater joy where he and Israel is described they're bringing up the ark of the Lord with great gladness. We see greater reverence in that every six steps they're sacrificing an ox and a a fatling, or I think that's a lamb, every six steps. There's a greater love and a greater worship as David is dancing with all of his might, and he and all the house of Israel are shouting for joy. And so, what is the lesson we can learn from this? You see, David did not stay in his anger and his fear. 
he ultimately submitted to God. He was honest to the Lord. He was honest about his anger and his fear, but ultimately he did not stay there. At some point, something changed. Now, and I think we have, we have to be willing to change when we encounter God and we are perhaps confused. Are you willing to change? Do you desire to change? The next uh, example is not of someone shocked at God's judgment, but actually at his mercy. You see, Jonah was sent to preach to Nineveh and to tell them to repent. He did not want to do that. He ended up doing it, but when uh, Nineveh repented, he was sad at their repentance. He was complaining and whining, and this was not a good reaction, and God rebukes Jonah. You see, a, a proper understanding of God's sovereignty and judgment does not make us look down on others, but it makes us look first and foremost to God for mercy. Now that we've gone over some of these examples, uh, we're going to move to our closing point um, and look at the eternal stakes. We, we must remember in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins shall die. You see, the Bible makes clear every time we sin, God has the right to strike, strike us down. We're not obligated one day to live. And there are eternal consequences for sin. Now bear this in mind. When the people of Israel in their history were running away from God, they're not only living in rebellion, but they're in eternal peril of hell. And so, as we discussed earlier, when God uses judgment to lead the people of Israel back to himself, remember that he is, it is resulting in, in salvation for entire generations of the nation of Israel. Imagine had God never tried to lead Israel back to himself. Imagine had he never judged them and used that to bring, bring them back. Would not the whole nation be condemned if God had not been faithful? Imagine how many, um, but we need to understand that through God's historical acts of judgment, many people, Israelite and Gentile alike, have come to understand their own need for God and have found mercy. In this way, God's judgment is both merciful and just. Merciful in that it bring, he uses it to bring us back to himself. Just in that he punishes sin. You see, God's judgment is a trumpet call to all mankind, all of humanity, that we need God. And God has given us time to repent. But one day he will come back and judge the earth. It, God's judgment tells us that there really is a holy God. But despite all the sins that we've done, God sent his son to die for our sins, and he rose again. And he would give forgiveness and life to all who would repent and believe in him and believe that he rose again from the dead. So I think we should not forget uh, the eternal stakes of repentance. I think when we look at the judgments of the Old Testament, we need to remember that God was bringing people back to himself for eternity. And so what is our reaction to God's sovereignty? Remember the prophet Jeremiah versus the false prophets. Is your reaction to God's sovereignty something that points others to God or leads others astray? Now, if you think your um, 
reaction is not what it's supposed to be, are you willing to be honest with God like King David was? And are you willing like King David to ultimately submit to God and to be changed? Or do we despise David for being changed? Do we think he's a fool? Do we recognize the mercy that we've received, the soul that sin shall die? Do we believe we deserve that? Or do we, th- do we still think God is overly harsh and we didn't really need that much mercy? Or do we remember that we are only alive because of mercy? Do you recognize the peril that the lost are in and that God truly desires their repentance? Again, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Might our response to the sovereignty of God drive us to share the gospel and be a light to the nations? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. Again, I ask that you would just bless this time as you've read your word and um, lead us in the way you would like us to go. Just pray again that your name might be glorified, your church would be built up, and the lost would be reached. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.